The Charles Adler Show starts now. Mark this down, folks, as a career highlight. We always start with a, a bit of a story because that's that's who we are. So here it is. For many, many years, various, I'll call them bosses, you know, technically they were partners because I had a company and my various radio stations were, were clients of mine. So I just want to be as transparent about that as possible. So let's just call them my business partners. My business partners would always ask, who do you want to have on your show? Who, who's, what's on your list? Top 10, top 50, top whatever. And always in the top 10 was a person that they would never allow me to have. And her name is Kathleen Petty. Why? Because Kathleen Petty has taught me more than she could possibly imagine. Yours truly and thousands and thousands of others. Every time you witness a Kathleen Petty broadcast, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, CBC Radio's award-winning The House. Uh, she was one of the pioneers on, on News World. She does, in my opinion, I'm going to be as self-deprecating here as possible. Canadians uh, like to be honest about themselves. Uh, I'd, I'd love to think that I do the best podcast in the country, but I don't. Kathleen Petty does. She hosts West of Center. Every time I'm listening to my friend, I'm learning something, learning something, learning something. Kathleen Petty, can't tell you how happy I am to have you on the show because I was never allowed to have you in the you know prehistoric uh, part part of my life. You know the last fifty years. Uh, in the next fifty years, uh, this is going to be a treat, and I hope a regular treat. Kathleen Petty, welcome to the Charles Adler Show podcast. Well, hello, my friend. I mean, you're trying to make me blush. I feel like I wish I had a fan so I could uh, cool off from that hot intro. But uh, as always, you were so, so kind to me and generous. And I thank you very much for an intro that uh, I wouldn't have dared write for myself, but I certainly appreciate it from you. So Kathleen, many people who are are listening to us, uh, they are communications uh, professionals. It's uh, one of the things that uh, both you and I are proud of communications professionals uh, tend to want to pay attention to what you and I are doing. And I want to start out with something for them and for all those people who simply care deeply about listening to strong communications. There is a serious line of separation between a conversation, which is I what I like to do, and an interview, which is what you are the best at. I want to hear it in Kathleen Petty's words. Be my professor, if you will. What's the difference between a conversation and an interview? Listening. I think listening always. Uh, Interviews are often very prescriptive. And a lot of people who do interviews, and you've been in this game a long time, Charles, you know you get this uh, question line ready ahead of time. And I think uh, producers and hosts, to a certain extent, get very attached to the list of questions. And the the problem with that oftentimes I find is that it prevents listening because you end up being so sort of devoted to the conversation you imagined you were going to have and you sort of insist on having what you'd laid out for yourself. And it probably takes a a little bit of courage uh, not to be so dedicated to it. And that is to say that you should do your homework obviously, and you should know uh, your file. And that allows you to listen because then when someone says something that you know based on your research is worth pursuing, 
you pursue it. And I do think the audience is very acutely aware when an interviewer is not having a conversation because they're thinking of a question that they would ask and then it's not asked. And so right away that separates you then from uh, from an audience. And I think an audience is more interested in a conversation uh, as well rather than an interview. But I would say that some of the constraints of uh, the programming that gets done sort of does get in the way of that. Uh, radio, I, and you worked at, you know this, radio, generally speaking, has far more room for conversations than often TV does because TV interviews are generally pretty short, right? They're four or five minutes long, whereas radio interviews tend to have much more of an arc to them. And so it allows you so much more room to have what I would call is a conversation. And I want all of my interviews, I keep using air quotes here, but interviews uh, to sound like a conversation because I think that's what people want to listen to. And I think conversations allow the audience in. They don't feel that they're sort of separate from what is being uh, talked about and discussed. I think they feel more involved because when you're having a conversation, as I say, you are more naturally following up on things and thinking of things and pursuing things that the audience that is consuming it is also thinking about, and it just allows you to connect better. Sometimes, and I'm just uh, going to exaggerate here because that's what I do just to, to make a point. Sometimes when you're listening to an interview, radio or television, but ex especially television, uh, the interviewee says something totally unexpected, like, you know what, I think democracy is dead. And the person who's reading questions, the bingo caller, if you will, says something like, what color was the bus? And, 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 I'm just, and, and I feel badly for the person who just said, what color is the bus? Because I know the person's not stupid. I know the person is trained, except the person is scared, you know, manureless, just really scared not to read the, the question that the producer has assigned uh, to the person. So I'm just wondering, when Kathleen Petty has been in those uh, positions, because you've done lots of radio, done lots of TV, you've had lots of producers, have you had to fight with producers to say, no, I, I, I can't talk about the bus right now because they just said something that I had to respond to? Do, have you had battles off the air, as it were, with, with producers? Yeah, I've had battles before and after uh, with producers. I mean, I'd like to think that uh, ultimately it ends up being a, a collaborative process. At least I certainly hope it is. I've been fortunate in that most of the shows I've done, I've been the one uh, putting the question line together anyway. Uh, with, with some consultation, obviously, with the producers, that hasn't always been the case. But... I think I've been pretty good at trusting myself and trusting my instincts. And I've, you know, often said that although you can make news by getting, you know, unmarked envelopes slipped under a door and that's, you know, that's uh, obviously not exactly how it works. But I, I do think you can make news by asking the right question. Sometimes that's all it is, is just asking the right question and trusting your instincts. And sure, I, I've had uh, battles uh, with producers over the years, but 
uh, I've still trusted my instincts and uh, and you have to also concede that you know sometimes I haven't been right. You know, I've made uh, a decision in the moment because when you're on the air, as you know, Charles, you're the one on the air and you're ultimately making the decisions, especially when these are live programs. And I would uh, not, it would not be honest for me to say that I've always been correct and that I've always made the right call. But I think, you know, uh, on the whole, uh, I've largely uh, I think made the right call in terms of what uh, the flow of the conversation should be or the direction that it should be. And I'd like to think most of the producers that I've worked with have uh, reached similar conclusions most of the time, but you know, life isn't about always agreeing. And I think sometimes you just have to be uh, willing to disagree respectfully, maybe passionately, and and be okay with that and and hope that the um that the relationship survives it and you carry on and i'm still at it so presumably it's largely worked for politicians who don't like to do a lot of homework how enthusiastic are they about being interviewed by kathleen petty well i did find when i uh was on the house uh there were politicians that i will not name but uh, who stopped wanting to talk to me, that would not talk to me. And uh, that was uh, largely the result. It, in my view, uh, they would come on and uh, not really be willing to engage on their file, uh, very dedicated. When we talk about interviewers having a question line, well, then let's talk about politicians having talking points. And uh, they don't much appreciate being sort of... Uh, knocked off their talking points. And I had established on the House um, essentially a rule that uh, I would stop interviews if they started engaging in talking points. In other words, if I asked a question, I, I expected an answer, it, not a particular answer, but an answer to the question that was asked. And when that didn't happen, I was known to on occasion stop taping because for the house it was taped. So I was in a position to be able to do that. And in fact, uh, if you Google back uh, a number of years ago, Hugh Siegel, uh, a name that a lot of people uh, remember, I think very well, Senator Hugh Siegel, wrote a column that uh, I believe was uh, published in the Globe and Mail about the house rules that were established. And ultimately, the, the people who came on were the people willing to engage. And one of the people I talked to probably more than any other while I was on the House in terms of government ministers, because the Conservatives were uh, the government when I was in Ottawa and hosting the House, the person I talked to the most, Charles, was Jim Flaherty. And uh, he was always willing to come on and he enjoyed having an exchange of ideas and, you know, a, a real conversation about policy and he knew his file well and he enjoyed sort of the back and forth. He liked to be challenged. He also liked to challenge, right? So it uh, it went both ways, but it, it made for a much more satisfying interview and a much more satisfying conversation. And you know as well as I do, you've listened, you know, you've interviewed all kinds of politicians that the ones that just revert to talking points, it's it's actually not that 
interesting for the audience. And I have uh, made that point. One minister, again, then minister at the time, and again, I won't <clears throat> name the person, but it was an interview that I was doing after the Lac-Megantic uh, disaster. And I was actually not, I was back sort of filling in on the house. And the person I was speaking with, again, I was getting talking points and I stopped the interview and said to him, you know, um, we need to start again because this is not what people need to hear uh, when we're talking about a situation as serious as this. And again, I'm not telling you what to say or how to answer. That isn't what this is about. But I do need you to respond to what's being asked. And are so are you willing to start again? And to his credit, he said yes. And the interview was much better. And the audience was better served. And ultimately, that's the job, is serving the audience. And again, the job is not to bring people on who are going to, you know, agree with this, that, and this, and disagree with this, that, and this. That isn't what this is about. It's about having a genuine, authentic, honest conversation and, uh, you know, an exchange of ideas that is transparent and is something that the people listening recognize to be exactly that and feel that they get some value out of it. Again, not necessarily agreeing with what's being said, perhaps agreeing, but that's not the prerequisite here. The prerequisite is honesty and candor. So did you have to wait until you were a big brand in Canada before you could actually tell a politician that their number one responsibility was serving the public and that talking points were not service, talking points were just politics. Did you have to have a lot of experience before you could look a politician in the eye and say, we're starting over, fella? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I've been at it a while when we got to this point. And, and before that, I was working at what we then called News World, and most of the interviews on News World, frankly, because it was, you know, it was breaking news uh, a lot of the time, were very quick. You were just sort of in and out. Whereas uh, working in radio, the interviews are longer, as you know, and uh, when you're obviously taping interviews, you have an opportunity to have those conversations before you start. You can actually talk to the person before you start. So. And it probably took me a while. I mean, when I first went to Ottawa, and you and I have discussed this because you and I chat every once in a while. I mean, when I first went to Ottawa, it was a bit intimidating, honestly, because I was from Calgary, first of all, and I was from television. And I was going to the nation's capital to work in radio and uh, doing both the morning show in Ottawa and the house. And so I think there was a perception in Ottawa that of, you know, who the hell is she, essentially? Uh, who are you to show up in Ottawa and start uh, doing interviews about uh, national politics? I think there was a bit of that going on. And so, and I'd be, I wouldn't be honest if I didn't say that uh, it made it a bit stressful, uh, especially in the first year. I found that, you know, it was, uh, it was a lot 
to overcome and and eventually become comfortable and sort of get back to trusting myself that I had something to contribute. I didn't need to be from Ottawa to understand national politics. Certainly, I I was paying attention and I, you know, I'm a voracious reader and I consume uh, a lot of interviews, conversations as well. I all the time. So I, you know, intellectually, I felt that I had uh, something to contribute, but you can't help but be affected by that and, and find that that sometimes sort of constrains you and, and, and tests your courage and your convictions. And I, it did test me, but, you know, not for long because that's not really how I roll. I think most people who know me and have met me would uh, describe me as having a strong personality, and I come by that honestly. My parents were that as well, and I was raised in a in a household where I I was never given the impression that there was anything uh, that I couldn't do. It never even crossed my mind. So you know, once I got comfortable, and I will say too, it helped uh, doing Ottawa Morning because I also hosted the morning show in Ottawa, and it was the show everyone listened to in Ottawa. It was the number one show by a country mile. And of course, the politicians are in Ottawa. So I think I gained a lot of credibility also doing the morning show every day. And that was three hours every morning in addition to Ottawa morning. So it was a bit of a crash course in Ottawa and in politics, because you find with the morning show there, they don't cover provincial politics all that much, interestingly, on that morning show. The cover federal politics and municipal. So uh, that actually gave me an advantage that I was interviewing all week long, as well as doing the House. Kathleen, why is it that people retain much more information when they're listening to the information in audio than when they're watching it and they're listening, but they're watching video? Why is it that we come away more informed listening than watching. Yeah. Interesting, right? Um, because television is so visual, visual. And I think it's true even for people like you and I, if we're doing interviews, we get distracted. I, I know I did. I, you know, I would be, paid, be paying attention, Charles, to so many things when I was doing television, right? Where the camera was, you know, who was in the studio, if they were rolling the teleprompter or the teleprompter was no longer rolling or what the director wanted me to do next, or, you know, whether I was hitting my mic or, you know, and, and uh, you know, when the next live, in, you know, interview was coming up or there was a news conference where I had to stop the interview and go to it. And I'm talking about news world primarily. So all of that is distracting. And I, and I think it's distracting for the audience uh, as well. Radio, as you know, is, and people have said this many times, but they say it because it's true, there's an intimacy about radio, about uh, the voice, about the, um, even sort of the pace of the conversation. It doesn't feel as rushed. There's something just more sort of laconic about it some not always but uh laconic about it and uh, it tends to be more in- introspective 
I think, as people are listening. I mean, one of the big lessons that I learned, especially going from television to radio, was how I interviewed had to change. Because in television, if you were bringing someone on and there were certain points that you wanted to make or certain things you wanted to get at, you had to do it fast. You had to make it happen in sort of three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. And so uh, as a result, you would come across as kind of aggressive. And what I found on radio, and, and I used that style initially when I was in radio, and people found it offensive. Uh, they really, like they really recoiled from that. And when you listen to it, you know, you listen back to it and you go, okay, I can see it. You, you have to, I mean, the way I used to put it was, especially if it's an accountability interview, you can't just sort of wrap the noose and yank. You have to, do you know what you have to sort of, <laughs> do you know, you got to yes. set the table. <laughs> Because you, that, you, <laughs> you are such a Westerner. I love you. I love you. Uh, yeah, I'm from I'm from the East originally, but uh, you know, the West is my adopted home region, and there are things that we say in the West. And you know, you just touched on some of the bias that exists in in, in places like Ottawa and Toronto against uh, people who are from Western Canada, more specifically uh, from, from, from Calgary, more specifically from, from Alberta. But that doesn't mean you can't be pl- a plain talker, is the other thing I would say. Like, you can be. You can be. Even in radio, you can be a plain talker. But I guess what I'm saying is you have to give people a chance first, sure. right? But, yeah. it, but I'm just talking about your elocution, your way of, of discussing it. It's it's not the way they speak in Toronto. It's not the way they speak in Ottawa or or Montreal. It just isn't, you know. And so when when you know, I learned most of my communications in the West. I mean, that was my my training ground, my school. And so when I come back east to the Torontos and the Montreals where where I grew up, I'm often told that I, I picked up some Western habits. And really, what they're talking about is they feel in general that what we think of as down to earth, what we think of as as just casual and conversational, they think sometimes is, is, is not as, quote, sophisticated, not as urbane. And, of course, those of us who, as I say, have been schooled in the West, we don't, we don't care about urbane and, and sophisticated. All we care about is the public and connecting as much as possible with, with the public. We're not trying to, you know, be part of this so-called chattering class. So when you throw something like that out at me, it just reminds me of, of what it is that I grew up with listening to Kathleen Petty and what I, what I really enjoyed and what I really enjoyed about Western Canada. Let's, uh, let's focus on, on Alberta, which is home province for you. Why is it that you think, and there may be people who disagree, but you and I are on the same page on so many things. Why is it that when it comes to politics, Alberta is by far, in, in, in my opinion, and I know yours, nothing comes close. Why is Alberta politically the most interesting province in the land? Hmm. It wasn't always. Let me just say that. I mean, it used to be pretty predictable, let's be honest. And that has now changed, uh, as you point out. Um, and obviously, the, the big change was 2015, uh, when the NDP won government. And there was, you know, but it was 44, 44 years, right, of the progressive conservatives. And, uh, and, and that created a big change. Um, but part of it is, I think Alberta, um, I think there's a search for identity 
going on in Alberta right now. And um, I think we always thought we knew who we were. And to an extent, I suppose we still do. But uh, things get polarized when uh, people's mm, identity and and what they sort of see as their birthright is challenged. And you can see some of that going on right now, especially because I think one of the most interesting um, discussions, debates, is obviously going to be about climate, Charles, and the oil and gas industry. And that is what is going to make uh, politics interesting, not just in Alberta, but in this country. And I think it's going to dominate over the next year. And uh, part of that is is related to identity as well. You know, years ago, um, I've interviewed, I interviewed Peter Lougheed a number of times uh, over the years, and it was my great pleasure to do so. He was, uh, he was just such a wonderfully insightful, smart man. And I don't know, did you ever get a chance to interview Lougheed? No, no, I, I, I did not, and uh, it's uh, one of my one of my great regrets. But it just wasn't it wasn't available to me. I wasn't doing I wasn't doing talk radio when Peter Lougheed was uh, was my premier. Okay, so uh, I remember I spoke to him on the thirtieth anniversary of Progressive Conservative Rule, right? So that would have been two thousand one, and of course we know we had another thirteen years to go. <laughs> at that point. And I sat in his backyard at his home and uh, had this wonderful conversation with him and asked him to tell me why. Uh, Why one party could rule for that long. And of course, it was going to be much longer than that. And I I think this is key to what you're asking. So I, I am sort of getting to a point that that sort of responds to your questions. Um, He said that the Progressive Conservative Party was such a big tent, right? We always talk about big tent parties. He said was such a big tent that it was especially good at responding to where the population was. And pointed out that the Progressive Conservative Party and government that he ran was not the same as the one Don Getty ran was not the same as the one Ralph Klein uh, led, that it changed uh, over time as the province changed. So it was, it was acutely aware of where, you know, also willing to help lead the population as well, right? Not just sort of blindly following uh, what people are saying or thinking, also trying to influence opinion and, uh, and try and influence uh, what people um, needed to think about in terms of priorities and, and what was important to the province and what the future was, but also being acutely aware of what the zeitgeist was in the province and that the party was very good at doing that. I think what happened was that the party lost its way, right? The Progressive Conservative Party lost its way and was not is able to do that and it is sort of diminished over time and then ultimately uh, very clearly the uh, population decided it was time to try something something new at that point which was uh, 
the NDP, which I would argue moved into, you know, was largely a centrist party. And that's the other key to this is uh, Lougheed always argued that uh, he always rejected the uh, the label that the rest of Canada would put on Alberta as being uh, um, a right-leaning uh, province and population. He argued strenuously that it was Alberta was a centrist uh, population and that uh, the progressive conservatives were evidence of that because they were so good at sort of finding that center and making sure they expanded a bit to the left and a bit to the right um, to sort of capture as many people as possible, but it was largely centrist. And the NDP became in this province very centrist and uh, sort of moved into that area. And it's always sort of the fight for the center. I mean, you know Janet Brown well. She's done extensive polling for CBC. And she has, we've done this a few times where we've had her ask the population, where do you put yourself on a scale from zero to 10, zero being left, 10 being right. And Albertans put themselves in the center. I mean, slightly right, you know, maybe 5.5 as an average, but I, I think that's what changed is that uh, the the PCs lost the center, the NDP found the center, and, uh, and but now it's become a bit confusing because I think the UCP, and again, in the same polling, uh, the uh, respondents, we asked them, and this was Jason Markasoff who suggested this, by the way, ask the population to place the leaders on this scale of zero to 10. And if I remember correctly, they put Notley at 3.8 and they put uh, Daniel Smith at eight. 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 Whoa. And whereas the population was sort of 5.5. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Well, it is. And, you know, it, it, it's hard for me not to get personal about this because, you know, Peter Lougheed and Bill Davis my two conservative icons. And while I thought of myself as conservative, I thought of myself as a moderate. And so on the scale of 1 to 10, I too would be a 5 or a 5.5. So in recent years when, you know, some conservatives have expressed disappointment in me, I, I've told them that, you know, they say you've changed. I said, I was conservative. I've always been conservative my entire adult life, but I was never right wing. And if the party decides to be right wing, you know, an 8, you mentioned Danielle Smith, that's, that's not me, and I'm not going to pretend it's me. I'm not going to pander to you and, 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 and pretend that I become an eight because I've got to stay in, in my own zone, not because it's a comfort zone. It's my zone. And, uh, you know, so I get, uh, I get a little miffed when, when people bring up this business of, you know, you're not really a conservative. You're now a, you're now a liberal. Well, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm in the center like most Canadians, and if the liberals are closer to the center, I guess you'll think I'm a liberal, and if the conservatives ever got closer to the center, I guess you'd be a little, you'd have a, you'd have a different opinion. But I think that maybe, and this is something that I need you to help me with, does, does the public not know when a party has, has moved? I mean, you mentioned Janet Brown, and, and, and people in Alberta told Janet Brown, the top, top pollster in Alberta, as far as I'm concerned, top pollster in Canada, told her that Danielle Smith was an eight. So this idea that the public doesn't know, in my opinion, doesn't wash. If they're identifying Danielle Smith as an eight, that means the public is aware that the party, that particular party, has gone farther uh, to, to the right than they'd feel comfortable with. And the only reason that party is still in power 
is because they do feel that the NDP is, is too close to three. Yeah. Well, and remember, during that campaign, they were both largely, you know, their platforms were largely what they were running on. Uh because there was never like an official platform uh, from the UCP, but what they were running on were all largely centrist uh, policies, right? And and so, um, you know, I, I trust the electorate. I do. Like you have to, right? People make their decisions uh, for you know, and it was a very competitive election too. That's the other thing. Let's not forget how close it actually was it was uh it was very competitive and i will as long as we're talking with janet she was like right on the money uh when it came to seats and a popular vote um but it it does show that it's a very competitive environment politically and and that's very healthy i think that's healthy because then you have genuine um you know debate about uh, a number of policies and and there's some very key policies uh, that this province is going to have to tackle over the next while, not the you know, and I point out again, not the least of which is how we reconcile our objectives in terms of reducing emissions and addressing climate change, while at the same time uh, protecting uh, a, a revenue source that is massive uh, for the Alberta government in 2023. Uh, it's, I think, 26% of the revenue. In uh, 2022, I think, I, do I have it here? Yeah, I think it was, it was, it was in the third, it was a third, it was a third of the revenue. I mean, it's massive. And so, you know, the stakes are very high. And I think, I think the population is going to be very engaged on this file in just this week, right? Stephen Gilbo is in is in the province and he's going to be talking to the environment minister and there are all kinds of you know concerns and angst about uh the battle that may well be brewing here and i think uh, all eyes are going to be on this province so it's uh, difficult for anyone who has uh, you know you mentioned the work in ottawa and flaherty and you know i remember several conversations with flaherty and just to focus on the business about energy you know, when Jim Flaherty was finance minister for, for Stephen Harper, and he told me that um, that there is no point in anyone being paranoid, his word, paranoid, about Ottawa cutting Alberta's throat when it comes to energy. So here's uh, Jim Flaherty saying as a conservative that, while well, one of the favorite conservative talking points is to say that, you know, if the federal liberals are in power, you know, Alberta will be, you know, somewhat out of luck because, uh, you know, the liberals will, will, will cut off uh, you know, the energy industry. But Flaherty said that no deputy minister, and the deputy ministers aren't uh, partisan. The liberals and conservatives share the same deputy. You know, if the liberals are defeated, uh, the deputy finance minister is not going to be any different under Pierre Polyev than, uh, than what we have right now. That's generally the way it goes. And Jim Flaherty said no, no deputy minister and no Bank of Canada governor, and then he mentioned some other names, but those are the two that stick out. No Bank of Canada governor and no deputy uh, finance minister would put up with a government that wants to kill the energy industry because it's it's the golden goose of, of, of Canadian exports. The Canadian dollar needs the energy industry. The Canadian economy needs the industry. And certainly the federal government needs needs the dollars. So I just wonder where, where Kathleen uh, Petty uh, sees that conversation and, and whether or not that's a conversation 
that I had with the, with the minister, and I'm sure others had the same conversation more than 10 years ago. I'm wondering how relevant that is in 2023. Uh, does the federal government today see the energy industry as sacred as it did when, when Flaherty was, was Harper's finance minister? Well, I think part of what they're looking at, Charles, is what's happening globally, right? There is a, there is a transition going on, and uh, we, we need to figure out uh, how, how we uh, transition along with everyone else. And global markets will probably largely uh, end up dictating what happens anyway, because we, we can't do anything about that. Uh, we have no control over that. So the federal government uh, and the provincial government uh, tries to come up with policies to manage that, that transition. And what the Alberta government would argue is that uh, the expectations, particularly when it comes to 20, the 2030 targets, uh, which is 42% below 2019 emission levels um, by 2030, uh, and then the uh, green electricity grid target uh, to be uh, to have that at net zero by 2035. Alberta would argue that uh, we can't do it that fast without production cuts. And then we get back to you know the very real um, angst around the revenue that this industry provides. And then on the other side of that, the argument that the transition to uh, greener economy uh, will actually provide revenue, will provide jobs, will provide opportunities, uh, you know, whether it's uh, hydrogen, wind, solar, uh, biomass, whatever, whatever the mix ends up being. But it's hard to see that uh, very clearly for a lot of people because, they, you know, you look at sort of the immediate uh, projections and studies uh, showing that there's going to be uh, fundamental uh, changes and displacement, and people think about their, you know, their livelihoods, understandably, uh, and what the revenue source. I mean, Alberta is. How, again, I'll go back to Janet Brown. You know, Albertans aren't fiscally conservative so much as um, tax averse, right? And so we live in a province that's used to having uh, a lot of revenue uh, that allows us to have low taxation. And so that's a, you know, a very real stake uh, for the average person in this conversation. And also you have to have confidence that uh, the politicians are actually getting the policy right. And I'm not sure what level of confidence Canadians have in politicians to get this kind of thing right. There's that too. Uh, so, and not to mention that it could all change because what what if Pierre Polyev is prime minister in a year or in two years? Uh, he's going to pursue a very different set of policies. So it's all very sort of unsettling and it's hard to really count on anything, uh, you know, because politics, as you know, as much as we wish that they would look long-term, uh, oftentimes it's very, you know, it's shorter-term stuff because you're just trying to sort of stay in power. When I hear talk about uh, five-year plans and 10-year plans and uh, uh, we're going to have uh, X amount of emissions by this, and that, I just, I'm sorry, my, my problem is that I guess I've lived too long. It's just that 
how, how many budgets have we seen where the, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's conservative government or liberal government, does a forecast of, of what things are going to be like in five years or 10 years, you know, the deficit will be chopped to zero in two years. None of those things mean they're, they all become just talking points because uh, the future almost never turns out that way. And if, if we're into a, a future where five years down the road or 10 years down the road, you're talking about 2030 and 2040, 2050, if, if, if things are different, if the, the alternates uh, don't give Alberta, don't give Canada the bang that we're, we're hoping the alternates give Canada, then the idea that the government is just going to throw a province into recession and possibly a, a whole country into recession in order to meet those specific targets, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just, that's not the way politics tends, that's not the way democratic politics tends to work. Yeah. As I say, I, I think uh, that the biggest influence is just going to be uh, uh, global markets right where the world is going where the invest follow the money right follow the money see where the money goes and i so then it becomes the job of governments to you know by following the money and seeing uh where the world is headed is to provide the necessary assist so that everyone to the extent possible can participate in the path that the world is headed but even that, it's hard to predict, uh, be it there are so many scenarios and projections out there, and they don't all uh, agree. Like even, you know, the Canadian Ener Energy Regulator, a lot of people were talking about this a few weeks ago, put out three scenarios uh, of what could happen. But it depended on the compliance with uh, net zero by 2050. And so, sure, I mean, if if there's, you know, broad-based compliance, uh um, that the price of oil falls off a cliff, as does production. But we don't know that that's going to be the case. And, the you know, there was another scenario where uh, there's only partial compliance. And then it's then suddenly instead of uh, oil being, you know, 20 something dollars a barrel is actually 60. And then there's another one where there's next to uh, no compliance. And and so and, and, you know, they were the CER was very. Uh, particular about saying these are not predictions these are scenarios we're not predicting anything and which is probably wise uh, because uh, that's a game very few people succeed at well if 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 everybody in the world is driving an electric car and if all the power grids are not run by fossil fuels then yes the price of oil will uh, will, will diminish drastically but those are great big ifs I want to I want to go to something else Kathleen, uh, because uh, we, you talk about on the money. Uh, I don't feel this, this conversation could possibly be on the money unless I asked you about uh, the roots. And yes, we mentioned that uh, you're, you're raised in, in Calgary. And I imagine when you were born, Calgary was, uh, you know, was a town of, you know, about a quarter of a million people with great big wide roads. Because I remember uh, when I lived in Calgary, the first time it was 1974. And being a kid from Montreal who liked to drive, I was driving my motorcycle at the time. I loved being in a city with no rush hour. And uh, some people called it rush hour at four o'clock, five o'clock. But from a Montreal perspective, I, I, I can honestly say that the entire time I lived in Calgary during my first tour of duty in the 70s, I hit not a single not a single traffic jam. So I'm just wondering uh, when you were when you were living in the city with a relatively small population, but lots and lots of space, whether there was a, a feeling of you know, we talk about freedom a lot. Different people have different definitions of it, but I only I only care about your definition. 
Did you feel freer then uh, living in Calgary? Was it a freer time for you? And I'm not talking about politics at all. I'm just talking about your, 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 your personal sense of, of, of freedom to do anything you wanted to do. Did the sky feel bigger? Did it feel freer? Did the air feel fresher when you were growing up in Calgary? Uh, hmm. You know, like in 1974, so I'll go back to your baseline. I was born in 61, so I was 13. <laughs> so I, I don't know what I was thinking when I was 13. Uh, I, I don't think I thought much about it at all. I, I mean, I loved Calgary. I remember... Um, before I moved to Ottawa, I had a few uh, people approach me about moving uh, to do jobs here, there. And I kept saying, uh-uh, you look Calgary up in the dictionary and you'll see my picture. Uh, I'm not going. Uh, so I felt very attached to Calgary. Uh, it, it did feel like I was of the place. My mother was born in Calgary, Charles, so she was born and raised here. And my grandfather moved here in uh, 1912, uh, the year of the very first Calgary Stampede, interestingly enough. And so I've always felt very attached, I, you know, because Calgary's a pretty young city. So by Calgary standards, right, that's sort of a long, a long time to have an affiliation with the city. And I, and one of the things I always loved about it was, you know, if you live fairly centrally, uh, when I would go to the grocery store, because I lived fairly centrally in the southwest, I could see the Rockies. And in fact, I was on the holidays the last couple of weeks. So one of my favorite things to do is drive out to Turner Valley uh, to the Chuck Wagon uh, restaurant. And uh, driving out there along the 22, you see the foothills, ranching country, and then the Rockies behind it. And I know you're not a meat eater, so I don't know if you'll appreciate this uh, reference. But when I went to the, what I tell people about the chuck wagon is if you go there for a burger, it was mooing five minutes before you got there. And, uh, and so Calgary still has that about it. Uh, it's one thing, you know, because I've spent time in Toronto and Vancouver. It takes a long time to get out of the city. Uh, it's still easy to get out of the city and into some pretty pristine areas. And so that quality of Calgary, uh, I've always really uh, appreciated and, and have loved, and I still do. And it's, that still exists here. Uh, you can really sort of get lost uh, by not traveling uh, very far, get lost and, and sort of and just embrace, um, you know, all the stereotypes, I suppose, to a certain extent. I mean, it figures I tell you about a restaurant called the Chuck Wagon, but honestly, the food is awesome. So if you ever come here, that's where I take uh, people for lunch if they're visiting from out of town. But that, that's sort of a glorious thing about Calgary. And yes, I felt anything was possible uh, in 1974, but I sort of feel that way now too. Like I, my mind has not changed about that. I still see this as a place of enormous opportunity and uh, and i do sort of buy into the um you know the the i guess w what is in the bones of people here that it's it is about possibilities and remember so many people are from somewhere else and i do think we attract people who think that way they come here because they want to be able to dream aspire and 
and uh, do big and interesting things and have a great quality of life. And I do think this city and this province uh, still provides that. And so, you know, I'm I'm an optimist in terms of the future, but I do think it's going to you know, it's going to be a relatively rocky road for the next few years. Well, uh, you're a person after my heart on so many different levels, including the valley, because I'd go to Black Diamond, I'd go to Little Longview. And See, there you go. And they changed the name, by the way. So Turner Valley and Black Diamond, by the way, have amalgamated. Oh, I see. Okay. And they're calling it Diamond Valley. But I don't know anyone who's calling it Diamond Valley, but just, just so you know. Anyway, the the town that I used to go to, for whatever reason, I mean, I, I went to the... I went to the Blue Ridge Diner. I, for whatever reason, the Blue Ridge Diner became the, the center of my universe, and I'd go out there two or three times a week in, uh, in Longview, and I guess uh, it, was, uh, it was, I guess, Ian Tyson country, among others, uh, many, many movies that people have seen, even though they'll say in the uh, movie that it's, it's Wyoming or it's Montana. It's, it's not Wyoming. It's not Montana. It's, it's the valley. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's southern Alberta, and it's a, it's a beautiful part of the world. It's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I heard I, friends of mine told me that for whatever reason the Blue Ridge Diner isn't there anymore, and I couldn't understand how that could how that could happen. But but things do happen. I want to ask you about uh, your folks. Uh, were you closer to your mom or your dad? Mm. Um, I was pr- probably more like my dad, so we did this. Uh, but I was I would say closer to my mom. But honestly, I I used to I mean I was pretty close with them both. I it, as time went on, I started playing bridge with them. They had uh, they played bridge with another couple, and the 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 uh, husband uh, passed, and they and they asked me if I would learn how to play bridge so they could keep playing bridge. So I learned how to play bridge, and but I my mom and I used to go to Vegas together for uh, over the years and that wasn't something my father there's no way he'd be going to vegas and my father was a lifelong conservative my mother was a lifelong liberal so you know that's the other thing i was so used to being in a household where you know there was sort of political debate and and uh and folks being on uh, different sides of the spectrum and you'll appreciate this charles because you know it is calgary my mother and her whole family they were like big liberals. And I, one of my first memories of Pierre Trudeau was going to my mother's home where she grew up and she had two sisters who never married and they were still in the home. They lived three blocks away from where we did. We go there all the time. And I remember walking in one time and there was a life-size poster of Pierre Trudeau on their living room wall. I kid you not. You know, like other people might have, I don't know, Donny Osmond on their wall or, you know, some pop star. They had uh, Pierre Trudeau, whereas my father campaigned for conservatives. He campaigned for Diefenbaker, as an example. So it was uh, it was an interesting sort of household to grow up in. And so uh, it, it helped me, though, become sort of agnostic politically uh, as a result, because uh I, I, I realized that there was no winning in that environment. So I observed and listened and, and, but, you know, it was respectful, but as they would often say, they just canceled each other's, each other's votes uh, out. But my mother was the one I traveled to Vegas with. So I would have to say that she was the one I was probably closest to, but it was more like my dad in terms of temperament. So as you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm known for some things, some things positive, some things not so positive. One of the things I'm known for is asking the odd uncomfortable questions. So 
I've got to do that here, uh, Kathleen, my duty, uh, as it were. Um, how scary was cancer? Oh, yeah. It's not really uncomfortable, but, it, you know, uh, for, for those who don't know, I'll just give you a quick sort. In 2011, I decided that I wanted to come back to Calgary. My mother had passed. My father was ailing. I thought, it's time to go home. And I was hired to be the host of the morning show in Calgary, uh, the Calgary Eye Opener. And uh, I sold my house, put everything into storage. And then I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And I'd never had so much as my tonsils out, Charles. So uh, this was uh, quite a journey. And uh, and then subsequent to getting diagnosed with breast cancer, I was then diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So uh, the decision was that the ovarian cancer had to be dealt with more quickly than the breast cancer. And I had a hysterectomy. And then it turned out I didn't have ovarian cancer. I had fibroids, but I didn't have ovarian cancer. But I tried, I'm sort of a half glass full person. So I decided, well, you know what? Breast cancer is fed by the estrogen. My breast cancer was. They took my ovaries out, so my estrogen factory was shut down. So that's a good thing. Then I fought the breast cancer. Then I had a double mastectomy. And then I had, uh, well, I had uh, five months of chemo first. Then, so the hysterectomy, five months of chemo, a double mastectomy, the 25 rounds of radiation. So it was quite a journey. And... And then you have sort of all the follow-up care um, afterward. And so here I am. I was diagnosed in 2011. It's, so it's been 12 years. And what I say to people is, because people go, so, you know, you're cured. Like, you know, once I think it's sort of five years and then they sort of, you stop going to see an oncologist on a regular basis and you sort of get on with life. And I don't say this to be... Uh, to turn this into a downer, but what I say to people is hmm, having cancer is a bit like having a stalker. So the treatment is like a restraining order, right? But it's you never really know if it's going to be waiting for you around the next corner. So you learn to live with that. And I have learned to live with that. And I certainly don't like walk with the cloud over my head all the time. But here's what I'll tell you about having uh, cancer. A few things I want to say. One is I was so well supported by friends and family. And I was well supported by the CBC. They could not have been kinder to me. And not everyone has that. Let me just say that. And plus I had good insurance. Because, uh, you know, there were some parts of... uh, my treatment that weren't that was not covered by uh, the provincial health plan, and so insurance was key. And there are so many people, Charles, who don't have any any of that uh, when they're dealing with cancer. So I consider myself very fortunate uh, to have had all of that. And uh, and a few things, it I'm a much more empathetic person as a result of having gone through that. And that's good. I'm glad I, that's good for me. I'm glad I'm more empathetic. And so I do see some upsides, uh, honestly, after having gone through this. Um, I, I appreciate other people's pain in a much deeper way, all different kinds of pain, uh, in a way that I 
I know I didn't before. And so it sort of makes you more human. And then the other part is with cancer, you you really learn who you are. Like you, you find out if you are the person you actually think you are. Uh, we all have this idea of who we think we are. But cancer lays that bare. You really learn who you are. And so the other upside of this was not just the learning of it, but also the realization that I was actually pretty much the person I thought I was, which was incredibly gratifying. So I, you know, I don't want to sound like some Pollyanna, but uh, trying to sort of gloss it over, but you know, everyone, virtually everyone is visited by tragedy or in some cases, multiple tragedies over their life. Um, but when I look back on this, as much as I, I would have been happy to have taken a pass on it, uh, I learned so much from it. And I think I'm a better human being because of it. And therefore, I think I'm um, a better participant in life and participant in other people's lives that I touch. So without getting into names... I can just say that Kathleen Petty is known for many things among people who really know her. And one thing she's known for is being a tremendous listener, tremendously empathetic, a tremendous friend. This question may be a little less comfortable than the first one about cancer. Was Kathleen Petty as good a friend before Kathleen got cancer? It's funny you should ask that. Um... It's a hard one to answer, but I actually have a little anecdote about that too. My mother, we were talking earlier about how close uh, we were, and I had a very good friend in Ottawa, one of two who helped take care of me, uh, Marina Doran and Joan Riding. Marina used to be a social worker, and Joan at the time was an Anglican priest. So I was you know, getting really good care. They invited me to move in because I was essentially homeless, right? I'd, I'd sold my house. Uh, and my mother at one point, um, this is before the cancer, because she passed, she passed of cancer actually. Um, but we'd been friends for a while uh, leading into this. And my mother sent them a note uh, telling them uh, how thankful she was that they were being such good friends to me. Uh, but then additionally said... <laughs> my mother additionally said how lucky they were <laughs> that I was their friend. <laughs> and, and, and when my mother passed, she left me a note essentially saying that to me, saying, you know, the way she worded it, she was marvelous. Um, how glad she was she met me. How happy she was that she met me. And... Uh, you know, she was very succinct, my mother. It was a very short note. She was uh, she was to the point. I mean, very much a Calgarian. So according to my mother, I was a great friend uh, to other people. But I will say, but I have to believe I'm a better friend now. I have to be. Like, how could I, I mean, how could I not be? Uh, what would that say about me if I wasn't capable of being better and getting better over time. I, I hate to think that I haven't improved. So I have to have improved, which means I probably wasn't 
as good a friend then as I am now to people. Well, you're one of Canada's greatest assets, one of this country's best friends. I'm so proud to call you one of my best friends. And I can't thank you enough for this, Kathleen. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press, and every day at criermedia.co.